everybody. Welcome to the New Market Alliance Church Podcast. For more information on the vision, programs, and news of our church, be sure to check us out at www.newmarketalliance.ca. We'd like to encourage you as well that no podcast, no matter how good, can substitute for the experience of joining together in person at a worship celebration. That's where God really meets people, often through the love and ministry of others. At NAC, we meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. Now let's join this week's teaching. Good morning, New Mark Alliance Church. How are you this morning? We're going to start every week with the shaming uh, process. How many, how many have read uh, anything from Ephesians this last week? Oh, good for you. Good for you. Those without your hand up, just look around and hang your head. So, so I'm going to ask again next week. And uh, by the way, you've got a sticker. If you don't, I don't want you to be unchosen. So I see Mike there with some stickers at the back. If anybody, um, would you just turn to somebody and say, hello, my name is Chosen. Will you do that right now? Yeah. So we're in the book of Ephesians. If you want to follow along in your Bible, you can do that. It'll be also be up on the screen. But uh, why don't we just jump right into Ephesians 1, verse 1. Paul. An apostle of Christ Jesus, chosen, there's that word for the day, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Are we? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we study the book of Ephesians, and it'll be for quite a while because I think it's great that we go through topics like habits. But ultimately, we've got to keep coming back to the books of the Bible and study them and let the text tell us the topics. And so this starts off here by telling us, as most letters do, who the author is. Paul, he's one of the most important men in all of history. He's, he's one of the most brilliant men in the history of the world. You know, prime ministers and politicians and movie stars, they come and go, but... Men like Paul, we're still talking about him 2,000 years later. He's a man who's responsible for the majority of the New Testament, actually. He wrote perhaps 13 books of the Bible, maybe 14. We're not 100% sure who wrote Hebrews. Some think he did. So if he did, that raises the number to 14. And, um, and then Acts chapters 13 to 28 are really focused on Paul, his journeys and his mission, and he, he didn't write it, but it's largely about him. And so he was a man who was an unbeliever, he was a murderer of Christians, and yet a very devout religious man, and as soon as he met the Lord Jesus, his life changes forever. And so Paul would pull into these major urban cities, and he would preach, and ultimately because people violently defend their idols like we talked about last week. He would preach against their idolatry and they'd want to kill him. And Paul was a dude responsible for a lot of riots, actually. So he was beaten repeatedly. He was left for dead at times. He was shipwrecked. He was left out on the open sea, he says. And he says, I, uh, here's a quote, I bear the marks of Jesus on my body. So if you... If you saw him, he was probably a man covered in scars from the beatings he endured for the Lord that he loved. Um, some of his letters, likely Ephesians, were written from jail. Um, this is a guy who wouldn't even 
waste time in a jail cell. He would invest it for the kingdom of God without complaining. He's, a, he's an amazing man. And he's writing to a church in Ephesus. And Ephesus is a city, and you can read about this in um, Acts 19. It's a magnificent city, like Toronto or Montreal. Uh, sometimes when you read the Bible, you, you think it's all like farmers and fishermen and sheep, right? But this is, by the time we get to Paul, he's, he's planting churches in major urban areas, right? Sophisticated people. And, and Ephesus at the time of Paul was a city, they think, of about a quarter million, uh, believed to be the fourth largest city in the world at that time. So it was on a harbor. It was the beginning of the equivalent of their highway system, you know, the, the Roman roads. It's a major banking center. It has the, uh, the temple of Artemis, one of the seven great wonders of the world. It's, um, it's a place, actually, of demonism and paganism. It's why Ephesians actually talks about powers and principalities and spirits and demons more than any other book in the New Testament. Uh, these, were, these are highly spiritual people in Ephesus, but they weren't God's people. I don't know if this sounds familiar to anyone in our culture in 2020, but Ephesus has a lot of diversity. Uh, it's on a trade route, so there's people coming and going. Um, there's lots of cultures, lots of religion, lots of spirituality, lots of complexity. I guess what I'm, I want you to know is that the people he's writing to are a lot like us, okay? Uh, and when Paul would pull into a city, sometimes he'd, he'd get run out of town a day later. But in Ephesus, he's there for three years. And he sets up essentially a training center, um, a place where uh, he sent out planters, church planters and, and missionaries and and the church in, in Ephesus grows itself. And it's one of the things I'm actually most proud of Knack. And I haven't been here long enough to take any credit for it. But this, this is a sending place. Oh, it's so exciting. The pastors and the missionaries and the church planters and the social justice advocates and the, the marketplace ministers that have come out of this place. And I, I pray we would continue to be ascending place. And so Ephesus becomes the hub of sort of the early Christian mission. Out of Ephesus, we read about um, Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos and Paul himself and Timothy and John and Luke. They all worked there or resided there at some point. Luke's tomb is still there in what is now modern-day Turkey. Uh, John's tomb, we think, might be there. It's a, it's a crucial place in early Christianity. So that's who Paul is, and that's whom he's talking to. In all likelihood, he's in prison at the time. So imagine, you know, I'm your pastor, and I'm unable to be with you on a Sunday because I'm in jail again, right? I've never been in jail, but Pastor Paul was frequently in jail, and so imagine your pastor's in jail again in a city where you're opposed, uh, a city where you're persecuted, possibly uh, as a minority where you might end up in jail again. And uh, imagine on a Sunday you've gathered in the church, the place would be packed because you hear that there's a letter 
from your pastor, your leader, you weren't sure if he'd been killed or, um, or what, but you know that one of the elders is going to read his letter on a Sunday, and there's just a, there's a buzz in the place, right? By the way, you know, <laughs> you know this, some parts of the world in 2020, this is very much their reality, right? Is our pastor going to be in jail again? Am I going to be in jail again? So how should Paul even start this letter? Well, I think what he's seeking to do in his letter to the church in Ephesus and for us is to establish our identity. Um, That's that word for our whole study in Ephesus. See, you need to know who you are more than what you do, okay? He is establishing an identity for God's people. We are, as Byron said, in Christ, in Christ. So the first thing he says to the Ephesians is, uh, to the, what, to the what? The saints, us, you, saints. Now here's our identity, in Christ, and because of our position in Christ, practically, we are saints, to the saints. Now, do you think they had any bad people in their church? Do you think they had any um, lazy people or gossipy people? Somebody shows up on Sunday hungover with their pregnant girlfriend. Do you, you think that ever happened, or is, or is it just us? Um, do you think these people sort of had this nuclear glow of, uh, you know, the glory of God with little halos, just quoting Deuteronomy from memory? No, man, they were people like me, and they were people like you. And he looks at this whole church, the good ones, the bad ones, the faithful Christians, the non-faithful Christians, the tithing Christians, the non-tithing Christians, and he says, you are saints. Wow. Here's a question for you. Is a Christian's identity primarily as a sinner or a saint? Where does Paul start? Saint. He doesn't start off with, uh, dear, guilty, vile scum, all right? To the saints who are in Christ. How many of you are raised Catholic? Be honest. All right, good, good. Uh, Welcome, my name is Father Jonathan, and this is our Mass. And uh, I don't have time to get into it, but to be a saint in the Catholic tradition means you jump through a lot of hoops, And it doesn't hurt to have been martyred as well, okay? By the way, I love my Catholic brothers and sisters. I would have been a great Catholic. I love the the smells and the bells and the the hats, uh, the rings, love all that stuff. But here's one of the few, few things that I'll disagree with my brothers and sisters. Because according to Paul, what is the one thing required to be a saint? One thing, in Christ Jesus. That's it. Are you in Christ Jesus? If so, you're a saint. Wow. Saint Brent. I know. It makes me laugh, too, thinking about that. (laughs) Saint Rebecca. Saint David. Oh, sounds good. Saint Paul. Oh, there is a Saint Paul, but you're, yeah, Saint Paul II. And some of you say, I don't feel like a saint. Well, that's why I'm asking you to start to believe what God says about you. See, once you 
believe what God has said, uh, we'll start to feel as God feels towards us. Sin may explain some of your activity, but it does not define your identity, okay? Uh, in Christ, in Christ, you, you will sin some of the time, but you are a saint all of the time in Christ, okay? Start to believe that. Some of you are stuck because your primary identity is in your sin and not in your Savior. You're unable to, to move beyond your past because of shame and guilt and condemnation, and God has forgiven you if you are in Christ. And some of you may say, well, I just can't forgive myself, which you know sounds kind of cute and sort of humble, but it's actually blasphemous. Because if, if what you're saying is, God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself, maybe what you're really saying is, there must be a God higher than Jesus that has my name, and though the lesser lower God named Jesus forgives me, the higher greater God that has my name can't forgive me. And, and then after he calls us saints, verse 3, he calls us blessed and he calls us united with Christ. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. So as you're reading and studying Ephesians for yourself, and as we spend the next several weeks studying it together, maybe just even make a note in your Bible. Nothing wrong with writing in, in your Bible. And just note every time it says, in Christ, in him, in Christ, in the beloved, um, and now we're called blessed. But some of you say, I don't feel blessed. You know, I have not seen this blessing of which you speak. Uh, I don't see it in the unemployment office or in my dumpy condo or on the bus. You know, I even looked under my seat for the blessing and all I found was gum, no blessing. <laughs> Where is this blessing of which you speak? Well, he says that the blessing is in the heavenly realms. You know, some of the blessing comes here in this life, and there is blessing to be sure from God in this life, but much of it is stored in the heavenly realms. And it's not because God is withholding from us. He wants us to enjoy blessings, but blessings that he has for us forever, a forever blessing. So for the believer, can I tell you something? This, this is as close as we'll get to hell. And for the unbeliever, this is as close as you'll get to heaven. Um, we are blessed. And in addition, I just, just remind me, where, where's Paul writing this letter again? In jail, okay. I would not write a letter from jail that started off all excited about my blessing. I'd be like, you know, day one sucks. <laughs> Day two, still sucks. Uh, day three, you'll never believe it, sucks more. Please get me Alan Dershowitz on the phone, you know? Have you found in your relationship with God that you will, you will see what you're looking for? Like, if you take God at his word, that he has blessed you, and you start looking for the ways that he has blessed you, you're going to see how he has blessed you? Uh, then look at verse 4. This is so beautiful. 
even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us, there it is again, in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. You have been chosen by the God of the universe even before the world. I mean, that changes everything. One more time, just turn to somebody and say, hi, my name's Chosen. Will you do that right now? Go ahead, come on. Oh, is this one of those churches where the pastor's going to make us turn to somebody and say, yes, yes it is. And, and he goes on to say, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is, this is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. Now, this is not the time to open up sort of this big theological debate between these two tribes that exist in Christianity, the tribes of Calvinism and Arminianism. Now, the oversimplification is the Calvinist would say, God chose us, and the Arminian would say, no, we choose God. That's, a, that's an oversimplification, but I'm not personally sure that it's that binary, that it's that cut and dry. In fact, we might say something like, God chooses us first, and then we choose God second, you know? God pursues us, and then the Holy Spirit gives us the faith to cry out, you know, Jesus, Jesus, save me. So look at back at your own life, your own testimony. Would you tell the story of salvation in your life if you're a Christian, like, here's how I was seeking God and pursuing God, and finally, after all my efforts, I found him. Paul wouldn't say that. Paul would have been at the time participating in the murder of Christians. And then Jesus comes himself from heaven, blinds Paul, knocks him on his butt, and converts him. I mean, that's called being chosen, okay? And, and so when I hear people's testimony of how Jesus saved them, if they tell it right, it always sounds like God is the one doing the work, right? To know that you are chosen. Oh, man, it's so beautiful. It's so important. What it means is it doesn't matter how bad you are. God could save you. Uh, it doesn't matter where you live. God could save you. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, or what you failed to do. It doesn't, it doesn't matter how rebellious you are, how religious you are, how ridiculous you are. God could love you and save you and pick you and choose you and bless you in Christ. Amen? That's good news. That's good news. Paul uses the word of adoption. And I think that language is really important here. I, I read that 40% of kids are going to go to bed without a father. Now, I don't know if that seems high, but um, a lot of kids regardless. And some of you had a dad, but he was not a good dad. Uh, he was a man maybe who abused you, or he's a man who abandoned you. And the whole concept of God being a father is so incredibly important here. About 14 times in the Old Testament, God is referred to as a father, but it's, it's always um, nationally, right? It's never individually or personally. Everything changes, though, when Jesus comes along. And Jesus starts teaching us how to pray. And he says, when you pray, pray like this. 
our Father. It's a sort of intimate, personal, affectionate language that he uses for God. In fact, he uses the word Abba, which is closer to our word Daddy. More than 60 times in the New Testament, Jesus refers to God as Father, and he teaches us to refer to God as Father. And some of you have been wrongly told or taught that God is a force. God is not a force. God is a father. And he's not impersonal. He's personal. He gives you himself. And the language here is that God adopts us into his family. So to become a Christian is to have a new father. God's your father. And to have a new family. Christians are your family. Matt can be your family. Some of you don't have family. We want the church to be your family. Some of you don't have a father. We would want that God would be, in a very real way, your father. Some of you like, um, you know, maybe the family that you were born into feel like your enemies or, or your greatest source of discouragement. We want you to be born again into the family of God. So the language is incredibly personal, and it ought to change the way we pray even. If you know that your father is God and that he's for you and not against you, man, um, you're going to want to talk to him. If you know how much he loves you, you're going to want to talk to him. If you know how gracious he is towards you, you're going to want to talk to him. Do you ever see a kid get adopted? Like, doesn't something in your spirit just ring true with that? Your soul is like, this is beautiful. Uh, That kid didn't have a family. Now they have a family. That kid didn't have a mom or a dad. Now they have a mom and a dad. Nobody was looking after them, and now somebody is looking after them. Nobody was loving them, and now somebody is loving them. That's beautiful, amen? That's why Christians have always had a heart for adoption. You know, in the early church, oftentimes... Uh, children, babies, were literally thrown on the trash heaps. And sometimes the boys would be collected and, and turned into slaves or gladiators, and sometimes the girls would be picked up, turned into servants or prostitutes. And so these early Christians, so compelled by the love of Christ, um, became known for picking up, adopting the abandoned kids of big cities. And I I just think that's a picture of the gospel of, of Jesus. All who are in Christ are adopted in Christ. And when we adopt and we love children that are not our biological children, but we treat them with the same affection and the same inheritance and the same blessing, um, I think we're showing something of the of the true heart of Jesus. And the, and the heart of the Father, of welcoming, welcoming them into the family. So it gets bigger and more glorious. It's not only are we saints and are we blessed, we are chosen and we're adopted. And here he adds that our very freedom has been bought with Jesus' own blood. Now in our culture, uh, we might use the language of addiction, Right? In the Bible, it uses language of slavery, something that has mastered us, something that has enslaved us, is harming us, it's destroying us, and we need freedom. We need to be 
delivered and released. I don't know what it is that enslaves you this morning. For some, it's food. For some, it's sex, money, fame, power, possessions. Uh, For some, it's comfort, control. I don't know what what your thing is, but whatever has mastered you, whatever rules over you, I want you to know Jesus has come to free you. He's come with the grace of God so that you can walk in a brand new life in him. How many of you um, would like an inheritance? Oh, I have an uncle that I didn't realize, and he's an eccentric millionaire. Uh, See, God has an inheritance for you. God's a father. We're his children. We've been adopted into his family. He loves all his kids. He chose us. He gives us an inheritance. Let me, can I just try out an illustration on you? If we had a second service and this one didn't go well, I'd, you know, nix it. But let me just try this out on you, that the dog people are going to like and the cat people are not going to like. Yeah, I know. I'm just going to dumb it down. Okay, cat theology, dog theology. Let's say there's a cat and there's a dog, and they both have the same owner, and they have the best master ever, okay? They sleep in comfortable beds, they eat the very best food, they are groomed at the very best place, they are petted, they are spoken to, they are treated and cared for in every way. They are spoiled pets, okay? And the cat thinks, I must be an amazing and valuable cat, And the dog thinks, I must have an amazing master. You see the difference? Mac, we have dog theology, okay? And so oftentimes in our world, it is cat theology. God loves you. God died for you. God blessed you. God has eternity for you. God has given you a new nature. God has made heaven for you. Look at how amazing you are. Look how important you are. Cat theology. Look at how great God is. Look at all that God has done. Look at what God still promises to do. God does all of this so that I might tell everyone how glorious he is, how loving he is, how generous he is, how compassionate he is, how merciful God is, how affectionate he is, how wonderful my master is. Amen? Dog theology. Okay, moving on. We're skipping ahead a little bit. Verse 15. Now, imagine that uh, you and I got this letter that we're receiving today from Paul. And I mean, it's hard to think of anyone outside of Jesus that we would esteem as highly as Paul. And this is what he says. He says, I want to thank you for two things. Your love of Jesus and your love for God's people, the church, okay? If, if you're here and you love Jesus and you love the church, this is a word from God for you. Thank you. Thank you. And if you don't love Jesus and you don't love his church, this is a word from God for you to repent so that you can, this can be God's word for you. Paul could be grumbling. He has a lot to grumble about. He's in prison. Why is he in prison? Uh, DUI. 
bust a cap in a guy, uh, tax evasion, <laughs> knocked over a liquor store. No, he's in prison for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. It'd be very easy for Paul to grumble. Man, I love Jesus and I go to jail. What kind of deal is this? But instead he's praying. He's praying for others. Wow. God sees, he knows, he appreciates, he's thankful for you. That allows you, I think, to stop grumbling because you know that you are loved. You know that you are cared for. You're appreciated. And it allows you to maybe even start praying for the well-being of others. And so Paul prays. Let's read this. I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. And so he prays, he prays for these people that they would truly understand all the things that Paul is sharing with them, that their sainthood, their blessing, their chosenness, their adoption would be more than just sort of head knowledge. Um, he's praying that this understanding would get down in their bones, you know, in their gut, their inward being, that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened. I, I can tell you till I'm blue in the face that you're chosen. I can preach it to my own heart. I can memorize all of Ephesians, but it may just end up being words on a page until until supernaturally we are given spiritual insight. The eyes of our heart would be enlightened and we would be confident to know that the God of the universe has chosen us. Wow. I just want to pray right now, God, that you would open the spiritual eyes of our heart. Not just that we would understand you, but we would understand how you see us. Would you reveal it to us, God, in a supernatural way, in a profound way? Pray it in Jesus' name. And he's praying not only that we would know more about Jesus, but that we would experience more of Jesus, that his power would be something that we experience in life. I think that just ties in so beautifully with what Byron shared about the authority, the experience that we can have Jesus in us, in Christ. You know how many times he says it in the, in the first chapter? 14 times in the first 14 verses, in Christ, in him, in the beloved, in Jesus, in, we are in Christ. And here's what he says near the end of the chapter. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Now he is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. And this is what, this is what the Holy Spirit's ministry is to us, to take the life of Jesus, place it in us, give us power uh, to live a new life, to live increasingly more and more like Jesus. And let me say, for some of you, I, I worry because your thought is almost that, well, Jesus ascended you know, back to heaven and now he's kind of left us on our own. 
No, he said, I won't leave you as orphans. I'll, I'll send you the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is going to guide you and convict you and lead you and instruct you and comfort you. And that's what Paul is echoing here, the words of Jesus. He's saying, I'm praying that you would learn more about Jesus and that you'd experience more of his power through the Holy Spirit so that your life would continually change to look like him. So um, I'll, I'll leave this with you as, as, as we wrap up here. But one of the keys of Christian leadership is prayer. You know, about, about half of the letter of Ephesians is prayer. It's prayer requests. It's prayer reports. It's, um, it's, full, it's, it's prayer. And, and there are other occasions where you'll find a prayer in Ephesians, and we'll get to them later, but I want you to see that Paul's teaching is always interwoven with prayer, intersected with prayer. I want you to see that Paul's serving is intersected with prayer, that Paul's suffering is intersected with prayer, that all of his communication was intersected with prayer. And sometimes what can happen is when we come to prayers in the Bible, we treat it a little bit like you know, systematic theology. It's not. It's a guy in a prison cell on his knees with a broken body opening up his heart, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, he's talking to the Lord, and we get to eavesdrop on it. And we get to hear this relationship between Paul and the resurrected, ascended Jesus. And one of the keys then to the, to the Christian life is prayer. This gives me a good opportunity just to remind you that every Sunday after church, we have a great prayer team that wants to meet with you, a male and a female, um, and, and they meet in the boardroom behind the Welcome Center and um, it could be the most impactful part of your Sunday to be prayed for, for healing, for comfort, for um, uh, just freedom. And so what this means practically for you, that part of your ministry is praying. You know, you don't know how to reach your unbelieving friends. Maybe they're resistant or hostile to the gospel. Ask them how you can pray for them. I have seen lots of people say, hey man, don't hammer me with your religion, bro. And I'll be like, is there anything I can pray for? Yeah, actually, there's this thing that you could... Like, I've seen atheists give prayer requests. Like, I don't believe in God, but if you think of it, could you pray for my mom in the hospital? And Glad to do it. Glad to do it. So let me say this as I close. The shortest distance between two people is prayer. You want to make a, a stranger a friend? Pray for them. You want to make an enemy a friend? Pray. Sometimes prayer moves the hand of God, right? But I think just as often it changes us. Like a lot of times we'll come to the Lord and we'll, Lord, I'm going to pray and I want you to move and the Lord's like, well, I told you to pray because I'm trying to get you to move. And I want you to move your thoughts and your actions and your feelings. And I want them to be moved into alignment with, with mine. So prayer is often us lining up with God's will and God's heart. That's, that's what's happening here. 
Some of you may not be great teachers, but you can pray. You know, some of you may not be bold leaders, but you can pray. And, and don't just say, like, I'll pray for you. Like, make sure you do it. Pray. Pray for them. Put a hand on them. Pray for them. Call them up. Send them an email. Send them a text. Drive to their house, but, but pray. I want to pray for you just as Paul prayed. Um, this is from Ephesians. So, Lord, um, Jesus is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. And God has put all things under the authority of Christ, and he's made him the head over all things for the benefit of Nak. And Nak is his body, and it is made full and complete by Christ who fills all things everywhere with himself. So I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, Nack, that you would see not only Jesus high and lifted up, but you would understand just how high and wide and deep his love is for you, that you are chosen today. If you are able... Will you stand with us as we worship and close?